0: this is Lindsay. You're listening to Kids in Berlin, Surviving as Expat Parents. Michelle and I had two weeks off of the podcast, and that is because we were, it's, it's a bit contradictory. We didn't have uh, all of our children for this time, and for some reason it ended up meaning less time for each of us and we're happy to be back we're happy to have our kids again <laughs> my um my younger son edgar was on a class trip for a week and michelle's son bear was was with his father for two weeks in another country. We talk a little bit about, um, about that as the opening, and then we get right into talking about our birthing experiences. We've wanted to have this conversation with each other for a while. I don't know anything about, or I didn't. I mean, I'm recording this now after we've had the conversation as an intro. So yeah, now I know. But beforehand, we didn't know anything about each other's birth experience, and it's something that we have been wanting to ask each other about. So that was personally interesting for both of us. This is just part one. Edgar, seven years old, was away for a whole week. A whole week? So how did that go? Yeah, it was um, different not having him around and difficult because he was so excited to bring marshmallows with him on the trip and so convinced that they were in his suitcase. His plan was as soon as they got to their room, he was going to go to his suitcase, take his marshmallows out and then hand them over to his teacher who needed to have full control over all of the candy that the kids (laughs) brought on their trip. (laughs) I dropped him off at the bus, I waved goodbye, I went back home on the kitchen table, the marshmallows that he wanted to bring. And that was really the hardest thing for me for the whole week, the whole time. It was just so strongly in my mind of, oh, God, the disappointment that he's going to feel when he goes to his suitcase and sees that he doesn't have these marshmallows. When he came back, he came off the bus. I greeted him with his marshmallows, and he's like, "Ah!" Oh, the entire time I was looking for them. So he never even realized that they weren't there. He didn't have that <laughs> moment of disappointment of, oh, no, they're at home. He had this, like, spark of hope, I guess, the whole time that he would find them, which maybe was better, but... But yeah, I mean, you were you were two weeks then without Bear, right? Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, uh, yeah how one, was that? One week
1: I went to London and I was really busy. I knew he was off having fun. So I had my fun in London. And then when I got back, I was at work. I just used this time to catch up on my sleep. You know, I just read a headline of a story, how to be a mysterious woman and still go to bed at 9.30 every night. <laughs> I mean, that is my dream. And uh, got to call him I, whenever we're apart. I know that it's annoying for him to be interrupted by phone calls from parents and I'll just talk to him for like a minute, two minutes at a time just to check in and uh, oftentimes when he calls me is to tell me, hey mom, take my phone off of downtime because oh. I still have control over it even though he's out of the country. <laughs> okay. So that was quite funny. Like The only reason why I'm thinking of you is because I yeah, want to be able to play, play on my phone. <laughs> um, but I think, I think in this case, no news is good news. Dad's yeah, mom. we
0: had also no known- news News. There was no information that came from the teachers during the week that he was away. I just, I can't imagine a school trip for seven-year-olds for a whole
1: week. I, I never remember that. It's a culture clash yeah.
0: moment for sure.
1: For Bear, that hasn't happened yet. We're actually looking forward to that in May just for three
0: days and we'll see oh, how that goes. Okay. I, I was
1: really nervous about it, but he's enthusiastic, so I'm, I'm going to take the plunge.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really great thing for the kids to have this time away. But I also think that five days are so long. It's two adults with a class of 26 kids. The emotional labor that those two adults are doing, they're everything to the kids, 24 hours a day for five days. Like, I can't even imagine teachers in the U.S. wanting that. But it's such a staple of Berlin I mean, I'm wiped out
1: by a birthday party that lasts... Hours with like twelve kids. I cannot. And some imagine. of the parents
0: staying <laughs> right.
1: Twenty plus kids yeah. and doing the emotional care and like whatever first aid or umpire of conflicts.
0: Yeah, there were kids throwing up. They said too, oh that they had to deal gosh. with. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's incredible what
1: these people are doing for our children. What is it meant to do? Because for me, it just brings up a lot of red flags. Of yeah, that's you the know, American, my, my son might not be able to yeah. to reach me. There's also when we talk about America a lot of headlines about sexual abuse. That's exactly where
0: Americans always go, I think. I mean, overnights are always immediately red flag sexual abuse, sexual predators, kids are vulnerable in the nighttime. It's just like we talked about in our nudity episode. It's a different idea here, you know, when you think about the idea of self-sufficiency and autonomy and giving kids really their own lives from as early as possible, letting kids see that they're their own people. The, The fear here is more the dangers that happen in a child's own home and mental and emotional and physical abuse that can happen from parents is also something that's not as much in the spotlight in the U.S. It's more about like stranger danger. Kids don't always have a safe home.
1: So it's almost a risk to not let children have their own development and independent adventures outside the home because they might not know how to navigate it's a
0: yeah and it shows them that you know whatever is going on in your family there are other ways to live there are different routines that people follow there are different ways that a 24 hour period looks and so you can distance yourself a little bit from from whatever you're learning in your home if if there are harmful things going on then from an early age you get a view of it doesn't have to be like this it, there's no option to homeschool your children
1: you could look at it as there's a certain way that we want everyone to think in this country and a certain set of knowledge. And if you veer too far away from that, we worry that you might get into some kind of rabbit hole of of extremist thinking.
0: I think that's part of it. This whole like integration, it helps you integrate into what it is to be a German mm-hmm. and a German lifestyle. I think that's definitely a part of it. And, and yeah. we want
1: to have the state have, a, a have an good eye on it. Yeah. Because we've had... A history where things have gone off the rails through extremist thinking and teaching
0: and but they also use this kind of way to keep people in an extremist way of thinking i mean i don't i i think this this is also part of the system of of taking kids away from their or providing kids a place away from their families where they can be indoctrinated into state ideals i mean right. there's also which, that
1: which if you don't agree with them could also be as yeah. you said like seen as an extremist way of 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 raising children, of programming them. Yeah.
0: I mean, anyway, like whatever way a country chooses to deal with its youth is... It's a fascinating look into, you know, what's going on with that country. And there are... Let's let's do introductions first. Sure. Who are we? <laughs> I can start. I'm Lindsay. I'm from the US, from a suburb of Chicago. And I moved to Berlin about 14 years ago. I had my two kids here. They're seven and nine years old now. So my entire parenting experience is here. I never was part of an expat community.
1: My name is Michelle and i've lived in berlin for about seven years i have lived very much inside an english language bubble but i have learned german and i understand it really well now and I can get by in speaking and and be understood. And uh, I'm from Western New York. Fun fact about where I'm from: one of the things the teenagers used to do was go scum jumping. What which, is that? Which means jumping off a bridge into the Erie Canal, which was uh, just a waterway that used to be used uh, back in the 1800s to tow carts of hay and wheat and whatever farmers grew. And now is just kind of a recreational place, but it. It doesn't smell great. It's not like a running water thing. Wow. And there's always these urban myths of like dead cow skeletons at the bottom. So,
0: you know, honestly, like we learned about the Erie Canal so often in school and it was always such Boring information. If they had talked about dead cow skeletons and scum jumping and towing hay,
1: fun. fun I, I think I should it just, been I'm going to start sharing some fun facts. Yeah, uh, definitely from, from where I'm from, because nobody knows where it
0: is. I don't have any facts about where I'm from. Because, oh, my yeah. my
1: my family is just going to be so mad at me. Now. It's also very beautiful. And
0: you're listening to. <laughs> To kids in Berlin surviving as expat parents. We started this podcast a couple of months ago, we can say now. Yeah. We're on episode seven already, working our way up to 10. And the idea here is looking back at our experience now that we're out of the... I don't want to use two negative words. Let's just say we're out of the part, the phase of young children. I I was thinking today as I was coming over, like we don't have little kids anymore. We have kids And that was a moment of like, whoa, that's crazy. But the little kid phase, it was so difficult for so many different reasons. And raising these kids in a different culture where there's so many doubts coming from all different directions, and then you don't even have this stability of okay. Well, at least I'm in a culture that I understand, right? Or a, with a language that I grew up in. It was just there were just so many things coming together that were different. And and now that we have kids, and not little kids, we're much more settled in this parenting in a different culture. And it's fun to reflect back on you know what what was going on there, and to laugh a little bit at ourselves. I and feel like culture clash.
1: Yeah, I feel like children of that age, of that young age, I was just so tired. I don't remember much, but I remember there was an underlying current of joy okay. as much as I felt a lot of pain and tiredness. I have remembered from those very, very early times, especially around the time of giving birth because I was so delirious with, with no sleep.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about what is it like giving birth in the US versus Germany? And we're going to be talking about our specific experiences me giving birth in Berlin and Michelle in Rochester New York. Yeah, so let's talk about the expectations first. What before you even thought about personally getting pregnant before you were even there? What was your idea of pregnancy and birth?
1: I have two sisters. And they were both pregnant and gave birth to
0: children before me. Okay, so
1: I watched them go through that experience. I thought you were
0: going to say like when you were a little kid, you were already able to see like with your mom giving birth, but you were one of the youngest.
1: I was the third of four, yeah, so, so you didn't
0: have that experience then. Uh, my little from sister you.
1: was born on Christmas Day, so the only thing I remember is like my grandma being there, and we were so hyped on Christmas <laughs> gifts, and she's like, "You kids, just be quiet." your mom is calling me about the baby, you know? And and we (laughs) just didn't really care because it was Christmas Day and we're like, presents! Okay, so
0: that didn't influence your idea about birth or pregnancy. Okay, but...
1: My older sister had decided that she was going to have her children via home birth. Mm. And so when I first heard her tell me that, I was really put off and really judgy, thinking, why would you do that? Why would you put your child at risk? and have him at home rather than in the hospital. I cannot believe you would do that. And she lived in New York City uh, on 110th Street, tons of hospitals around, and to see the pictures of her in her own bed with her baby just glowing afterwards, it was such a huge sense of relief to me. And but I, did you
0: but you still thought like that was irresponsible I, I did think it was irresponsible. even after you saw the glowing pictures it, yeah and yeah. because she's
1: just some but she's someone who's just really bold who is actually very scientific and just doesn't follow convention. After my conversations with her, I decided I would do this as my master's project in my journalism school. Mm,
0: Right, you mentioned that on another episode. And
1: so uh, I talked to probably more than 50 women across the New York City area who were interested in home birth. And the takeaway I got from them and also from doctors in the hospital were that home birth can be, sometimes can actually be safer than in the hospital and a woman can give birth at her own pace have her own plan have much more control and can have a very skilled midwife be there the rule in new york city is there's a midwife who will go to your home when you're laboring if there are complications you have to have an agreement with the doctor now this is again 10 years ago those laws may have changed what a lot of women are concerned about are interventions so when you go to a hospital that medical procedures are forced on you or you're pressured into medical procedures that you may not be ready for, they were not a part of your birth plan, but you're in distress, you may not really be in the mindset where you can make decisions and you feel forced to do something that might be for the doctor's convenience rather than what you're comfortable with your own body.
0: Okay, and this is what you learned when you were talking to these women. That's,
1: yeah, I also learned that as much as some of them wanted to have a home birth experience, it just didn't turn out that way because there were complications. And they it was very good that they could go to a hospital and have everything there to deal with what became a complicated delivery.
0: Okay. so I You knew informed be, yourself.
1: There could be so many different outcomes okay. and it all depended on my body and my plan. And I had a lot of options, but I knew it could go many different ways. How about you? What was your...
0: I think that's interesting. I mean, you you came into it so informed and asking so many questions and then actually made a research project out of it. I fell for this idea that you work up to the point that you have contractions, you give birth, and then a couple days later, you're back at work and your baby is somewhere. And it's all totally fine. And when you don't do that, then, you know, it's because of some weak thing with you. Like, I had really sexist ideas that... I just Why do you believed. consider why
1: do you consider that sexist? I'm curious why you're using that term.
0: I call it sexist because um it's it goes into this thing about pain that women feel is often underplayed or undermined and any especially anything that has to do with an experience that men cannot have. Got it. And it's also about it's also about these um realizations that are that are coming much more into light that people are sharing their experiences about, more about being totally discredited by doctors, uterine pains or cervical pains, decades sometimes, trying to convince their doctors that the that what they feel is real and just not being listened to.
1: And I think it was within my family. My sister had pursued a public health degree, and so maternal health was a big deal to her. She was around people studying this, yeah. and that filtered down to me probably if she had not open the door for me, I would have, you know, the scene that you see in the movie, like you, the woman screams, ah, and then the baby comes out. And I mean, you can read books and things like that. But that's generally the way that you think about it. it happens in the hospital all the time. Yeah, the process is it's long, but let's let's do a montage, get through the time and then there. And from my research, I found out again, like just every woman's body is different. It's so connected to her mind how she progresses in labor.
0: Yeah, and that, that's not a weak thing. And I think, I mean, that's thats where I see sexism playing a role too, that this idea of maternal health, like it hadn't even entered my my thoughts coming to Germany. And there is a lot of talk about maternal health. I remember just kind of rolling my eyes at it and thinking about, oh, come on, this isn't a big deal. And that's definitely tied into my upbringing and the fact that, first of all, I didn't really know too many women who had given birth. But it just didn't come into the social conscious that it's a huge thing that's happening to a woman's body when they're giving birth. And to discredit that, I think that's a very sexist response. It's it's discrediting all of the things that a woman's body goes through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think going to the hospital just seemed to become the norm, but that made it a very clinical medical experience that seems to be like, okay, the minute she feels pain, dad gets her in the car and drives to the hospital. There can be a rhythm to it, there can be a plan. So I understand where you're coming on from with the term sexist. I think it's a little more complicated than just that. There's like a medical industrial complex. I think that now when we talk about hospitals, it's not just men who are in charge. There are women doctors. Women there are, can
0: be sexist too. It's right. not, and and that's why I'm not I'm not saying it's just men against women sexism. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about it's I'm talking about a sexist system that's at play mm-hmm. that women are just as guilty of.
1: Yeah, I think I think though it comes from a sort of medical training and a system, especially if we're talking about the U.S., where these interventions came that were life saving that ended up being something that could be monetized and distributed out to various hospitals and doctors are trained on these like a payment system that is based on volume mm-hmm. so the sooner you can get people in and out and make birth predictable then it's more it's cheaper and it's more profitable for this whole system. Yeah,
0: definitely. I agree that that plays a role into it too, mm-hmm. but I think I think aside from that is that the way women are being spoken to takes away their autonomy because they're not seen as competent enough.
1: I I agree with you. I think if you go in with a certain amount of knowledge, you can, as a woman, can take control of that conversation. But you have to be really upfront. You have to really have a strong plan and strong partnership with the people who are assisting you within the birthing process it's um it, it's not necessarily the default that you can go in there and be in command of the situation. No,
0: and I think the the fact that a lot of people when they give birth for the first time are in their 20s that's not in a time where you've really taken control of your life. A lot of women are still struggling to find their independence and Stand up for themselves. And that was at least my experience. But how was it then for you? I mean, once once you got pregnant, then in the u s, what happened? like, what was what was the process then?
1: Yeah. so I actually got pregnant in Pakistan oh, okay. and then went to the u s. Um I, I had like a like a little bit of a complication uh, in Pakistan, like, little bit of bleeding. So we decided when I was in my fifth month, the plan had been that I'd go back and have birth anyway. But in the fifth month, I went back and stayed with my parents and then got ready for the birth there.
0: Okay. But maybe that's interesting too, to talk about like, what was it like in Pakistan? What kind of like, what was the process?
1: It was just to check on the development of the baby. So there was how often um, I think once a month. Okay. So it was just a blood test. And then they do an ultrasound like once a month, just to make sure the fetus was viable and everything was going smoothly. But I had an episode of some bleeding. And so I was considered high risk because I was like 36 when I was pregnant. Um, you've just given away your age. Right? Michelle. <laughs> there we go. We just decided, hey, rather than like fly when I'm further along, could be complications. Let's just like. So I went and stayed in New York with my parents and found a doctor and a midwife clinic that would take me. They realized right away that I had placenta previa. So that is a
0: complication. And that, that was th- the first time they told you that. You hadn't heard that in Pakistan. I don't know if you can
1: tell until like a certain period of the pregnancy because, you know, the placenta well maybe you can it covers the cervix yeah
0: i had a friend who's uh, she was told in the first couple of weeks of her pregnancy but okay. i mean maybe i think it also like the placenta can kind of change where it is and that's what they were telling her too you know it's possible that it'll move up and it won't be a problem later on
1: um, like a month before i was my due date they they said okay like we really need to watch this because mm-hmm. because of your age you would be a candidate for a plan Mm -hmm. C-section because you could hemorrhage and bleed out. It was placenta watch, you know, for the last month. And again, as I had studied this, I knew that could be an outcome. I had really wanted to give a natural birth and had made a plan to do that. But it turned out like the day before uh, my due date, uh, I went in to see the midwives and they were like, really, please just get a... C-section because we don't want to risk this hemorrhage problem. And so hmm. then that kind of just finalized it for me. And I said, fine. Okay, fine. Um, so, but up
0: until then, you were still considering try- trying at least for...
1: Yeah, for natural birth. Uh, okay. And in fact, so I went in the morning that they planned the C-section. It was a beautiful fall day. And I just remember the sun warming my face. I was really excited, really happy and went in and they put the IV in to put the anesthetic in Mm -hmm. and everything. And then, um, the doctor came in and said, you know, um, it's your placenta is kind of in a gray zone. Like
0: we would let you labor. Oh man. That's not what you want to hear then.
1: (laughs) And I was like, are you kidding me? You know, like you guys have spent like ages convincing me that this is what I should do. And I said, look, no, I, like my mind is now in this
0: mindset. Yeah. But I mean, but, but that was all that for the preparation, like there's nothing else that happened. Like, what was it like looking for the hospital? Like, was it clear which hospital you yeah, had to go I, to? Yeah, I think I just went to the hospital where my sisters went. And I, did you have to sign up to go? Like, what was the process like when you decided on the hospital? I
1: think I was attached to a midwife's clinic that connected to this hospital. So. What was the role of the midwife supposed to be? Um, They can be the ones that attend the birth and help you give birth. Um, And then a doctor would only be called in if there's,
0: like, an emergency. Uh, So there wouldn't – the idea would be that there wouldn't be a midwife in the room. And so how many consultations did you have with a midwife during your pregnancy?
1: It was once a month, and then it started being every week in the last month, leading up to the birth.
0: And how – like, how – what happened during the meetings? They would listen to the baby's heartbeat. They would
1: do an ultrasound. They would – I can't remember how they saw the placenta, but I don't know if it was, like, you know – where they're looking through my vagina up at it, I don't... And did they give you any tips for... Birth, So I did attend a birthing class and where we talked about breathing techniques with your midwife, with my midwife and my sister came as my like partner. Cause my um, husband at the time had remained in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and was going to come later when it was near the due date. This one uh, course in New York city, when I was researching my master's degree where the teacher said, look, you want to create an atmosphere to give birth like when you conceived So if you need a dark room with, like, purple curtains and, like, purple rain music by Prince so you can relax, like, you should do that and do whatever makes you feel relaxed. And actually, there's a video called Orgasmic Birth. Yeah,
0: I've heard about that. Right,
1: right. So I interviewed the woman who created that video as well. So I knew... I could go into this with a plan to... To be have this. an orgasm. I, I wasn't ready to go that far. Okay. <laughs> but I knew that you could create this atmosphere that was meant to be relaxing for you. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, I interviewed a doctor who said... Different women, again, have different mindsets. So Mm -hmm. some women want that, like, purple rain experience. Some women, he said he had met a woman who was laboring and she just wasn't progressing. He said, what's missing in your mind? And she said, where are all the machines? So they wheeled uh, a machine; they okay. didn't even plug it in, and then she started progressing. So it is really a uh, mind-body connection. You're gonna meet all different yeah. kinds who who are plugged into different ideas of how things should work. H- how about for you? How, what was your leading up to your birth experience like? Well,
0: I felt like there was just so much, so many more steps than I had been expecting. Okay, so we're continuing the conversation. It's a new day. <laughs> we were at Michelle's place. <laughs>
1: And we got interrupted because we were having so much fun and talking so loud that it woke up my son, who uh, was really aggravated, and so we we were approaching 10.30, which is, any parent knows, if your yeah, picked up that late. parenting gets
0: in the way of talking about parenting. <laughs> we just want to relive it. We don't want to experience it in the moment. Print
1: it, t-shirt slogan. Yeah.
0: Yeah, totally. So now it's a new day, the children are at school, and we can finally have a moment to ourselves to talk about them right? (laughs) and what it was like bringing them into our
1: lives. So Lindsay, I talked a lot about my birth research leading up to the day in the US. How about you? What was it like for you here in Germany?
0: Well, first of all, I did zero research, and that was on me. That had nothing to do with any cultural thing. It was just my idea that I, maybe it was a cultural thing. I grew up maybe with this framework of thinking birth is not a big deal. It's just something that happens, you know, women go through it. And sure, it's painful, but whatever, it's natural. There's nothing you need to do to prepare. And I will say that was a mistake from the German society about the steps that you should take to prepare your body for a birth and I remember thinking that that was all just totally exaggerated and unnecessary and I was hearing about things like birth yoga and um, maternity classes and learning to breathe and all these things about eating I did take the the food um restrictions scared me enough about you know the bacteria that you could introduce into your body that would then cause problems for the fetus that definitely put fear into me and I did avoid all of the food that I was supposed to avoid because I was um I was believing all this fear but not listening to the good advice Um, I didn't do any of the yoga. I, at the very last minute, signed up for a birthing class because that's free here in Germany. It's like part of your birth plan. Um, You sign up for one with a midwife. People sign up like months in advance. I was at this birth class in the seventh month of pregnancy. No one else was even showing in this class, I, I, like, I got the last available spot. It was the fifth person I had tried to book a course with. It was like my last chance, my last opportunity. And it was a waste of time. It was so stupid. Why? But, but probably because it was like the last. Like, I think this is why people book early, so that they get a good one. I think it like, really was tied into me not doing my research. What were they trying to teach you that you thought was useless? She just really liked talking, um, and, uh, which is funny saying while I'm doing a podcast, I <laughs> but she like it was like a performance to her. She spent, I looked at the clock, 15 minutes vocalizing the different phases of labor because she wanted to make sure we were not surprised by the sounds that potentially could be coming out of us. And so Can she. You, do you remember any of these sounds? Yes, she laid on a Petsy ball, like one of the, I don't. Is that what they call it in English too? Like these big blow up. I just call it inflatable exercise ball. Yeah, that. Um, so she had that, and she laid down on it, and she starts just swaying back and forth on it, and just moaning. I don't really want to. I'm not going to do the sound. It's... <laughs> <laughs> that came later. That wasn't phase one. That was phase three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But right. um, but it just And she was stre- She stretched everything Just so long There were interesting things I mean she had A model of the pelvis She had um, And it was interesting As a visual to see I could have watched A YouTube video I, I don't know. I wasn't, I really was not happy with it. And that was literally all I did that I could opt into. What about
1: choosing your hospital though? Yeah,
0: that was an interesting thing too. That was also one where I, um, like in Germany, there are a lot of hospitals and you can choose the one that you give birth to. Like if you have an emergency at the last minute and you call an ambulance, the ambulance will take you to the nearest hospital. But people usually don't want to go to the nearest hospital they want to choose which one they go to they want a relationship first with the with the staff that's there and so they do a little bit of research they see okay which hospital fits to the birth situation that i want like which one has a bathtub which one has a rope which one lets you um progress through your labor the way that you have in mind like for your ideal which ones will give you the shot in your the epidural the epidural yeah and those are the kinds of things that people base their choices on. and um, and so then you I think I think it's when you're in your like fourth month of pregnancy or something. I don't remember the time frame exactly, but but pretty early on in the pregnancy, you're supposed to get yourself on a list at the hospital. You call and you say, "Hey, my due date is." whenever and i want to give birth in your hospital and then they look at their their calendar and they tell you if they can accommodate you or not people will be told like no we don't have space for for you i had a very bad timing my um my kids both have their birthdays at the end and beginning of the year the 29th of december and the 3rd of january could have been on christmas it could have been on new year's eve like i could not find a midwife because everybody like i waited a little longer than other people a lot of Midwives take vacation time during that time of year, and so I didn't have a midwife. And um, and that's called a hebama here.
1: Yeah, is that right.
0: That's called a hebama, and that's that's just a standard part of your birthing process. Like when you find out you're pregnant, you you look for a hospital and you look for a hebama or a midwife.
1: It almost sounds like the kita search that we talked about yeah, before. Yeah,
0: that's what was coming Especially, to my mind too.
1: Yeah, I've heard that in Berlin that it is very hard to get a hebama. You can have a lot of choice in terms of the hospital, but you have to do your research. You have to really find the spot
0: just like Akita's, does they have like parents evenings where you go to the hospital and they it was like a PowerPoint presentation about what you can expect if you give birth at this hospital they're like really trying to sell themselves to expectant parents and then with a question and answer at the end and there are people that, that will go to like 10 different hospitals and and listen to their spiel and decide which one sounds the best and of course they make it sound a lot nicer than it is I remember them saying like we greet you with a cocktail of re- replenishing um, vitamins and nutrients that you will need to sustain you through your birthing process I did not get a beverage you
1: didn't get the Pedialyte cocktail no
0: <laughs> I, which I'm still kind of bitter about Like, why <laughs> did they tell us about that if it wasn't a thing but then you know they show you pictures of their bathtub they show you they show you pictures of their birthing balls and their birthing stew And they're birthing ropes And I mean these are the standard hospitals This isn't like a a special private situation this is the public the public situation one big choice you have birthing houses and you have hospitals and there are kind of two different ways that a hospital can go a hospital can go into a more natural birth direction or a hospital can go in the very american experience of epidural and not so much personal choice in how it's going
1: i will say though that in my experience in american hospitals you do you can have
0: choice that's my cliche.
1: Yes, it is a cliche. So <laughs> let's break it down. You, you do have choice, but it is also structured to have interventions very quickly um, because it is about, it can be about a very medically oriented birth. Yes, they're, they're also the hospital that I had gone to had what you're talking about like the pools and the ropes and you know they said this is you know where you can do most of your labor and my little sister had all of her kids naturally in the hospital and um, used all. Of, I don't know if she used the ball and the rope and everything, but there was definitely space for her to do labor as she had planned.
0: Oh, okay, mm-hmm. okay, all so, right. And actually, I mean, it's funny that that is actually what I wanted to say, and then I went into like the movie cliche of America because I'm such an outsider when it comes to these things. But but what I did want to say is what you said with the medical interventions available. Those are the two lines that it goes into. Like some hospitals don't have intensive um, intensive units for for newborn babies. And that was what guided my choice for when I had Nat, because it was very important to me that if something went wrong, that there was directly there an intensive unit. Otherwise, they would take the baby, the newborn baby to a hospital with an intensive unit in an ambulance and there's only space then for the baby then the mother stays where she is and the baby gets taken to the intensive care unit and that was just such a horrifying like I mean all of my decisions were based by fear like anything that I wasn't afraid of I just didn't pay attention to (laughs) (laughs) and anything that I was afraid of I went overboard with like caution that was my my leading up to my birth (laughs) mindset and experience with the first child. With the second child, I, I did a much different preparation. I did birth yoga every single day. I paid really careful attention to what I was eating to make sure that it was making my body feel good and strong and regenerated and I also really made sure I got enough sleep with the first kid too I was just like I don't need sleep and that yeah
1: so I think we need to lead into the actual birthday as we talked about had been a traumatic experience for you as you had marked your kids birthdays when we talked about birthday parties
0: yes where I thought that everybody celebrated their kid's birthday with a feeling of trauma. (laughs) And Michelle said, no, that's not the case. (laughs) Not everyone feels triggered and re-traumatized when their child blows out the birthday candles.
1: (laughs) I thought you were going to say when you remember them blowing out your
0: vagina, but... (laughs) No, that but that was I, that didn't happen. It was a C section. True.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, actually, for both of us, tell me about Nat's birth. Like,
0: what happened? Yeah. So I, I mean, this leads well into then. Like, what actually happened? It was. Um... But before I say anything else, I'm going to have to say goodbye for today. I'm cutting us off here because we still have quite a lot of material to cover. Tune in next week to find out where all of this preparation brought us. And if you have any comments or questions, come visit us on our Instagram account. It's Kids in Berlin Expat Parents. You can see some pictures and also some highlights from our our German pop quizzes over the last few episodes and feel free to look up our, we have, I mean, this is episode seven now. We have six other topics that we've talked about. Check those out too. Um, and also a call out for if you want to appear with us on our podcast, we really would like to start expanding the conversation. Having a guest every time would be amazing. So get in touch if that's what you want you can, I mean, over Instagram is right now the best way. And same thing, get it in touch if you want to tell us about some topics that you'd like to hear about or some things that you think would be interesting. But for now, we're saying see you next week. Auf